This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 225 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Saranya Bark. Hey, everybody. Coraline Ada Emke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Ben Browning. Good morning. So, Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So, I work at Red Hat. I lead a project called Torpbox, which you'll hear more about in a minute. I'm an active JRuby contributor as well. And I've been at Red Hat for five years now, being paid to do professional open source development. Before that, I've worked in more traditional companies where uh, it's closed source software, Java, Ruby, .NET, but open source is, is where I am now and where I love it. Awesome. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what TorqueBox is? I've used it before. I don't know how many of the rest of the panelists have or our audience have, so I'd like to just kind of give my idea of what it is. Sure. We call TorqueBox a Ruby application server. What it basically is, is we tried to take the idea of Java application servers. Rubyists are obviously not in love with Java, right? They wouldn't be Rubyists. A lot of Rubyists are ex-Java people, but they have a lot of problems that they've solved in Java with application servers. We basically tried to take that and bring it to Ruby in a way that is familiar and comfortable for Rubyists without having to reinvent the wheel to solve the same problems that have already been solved in some of the Java spaces. It's a JRuby project. It only runs on JRuby because we do sit on the JVM to take advantage of Java. But we, we allow you to run Rack, Rails apps on top of Torquebox. There's also libraries for other things if you want to do scheduled jobs or messaging. We have a, we have a lot of these different components that we bring to the table outside of just web. And a lot of our users use us because of the other components. Some of our users just use us for the web bits. Some people are in a position where they do Java at work, right? But they can use Torquebox and it's it runs on a Java server, but it's still Ruby, kind of like a warbler, if you will. It seems like there are 
two or three use cases that I see with people using it. And one is, is that they work in a Java shop. And like you said, they just take advantage of the stuff that's there. It all runs on top of JBoss, you know, so their ops people and everybody else are familiar with it. So they can kind of take advantage of some of the momentum that they already have in the company. And then they just put this stack on top of it. The other use case I see is that people look at TorqueBox they like some of the performance characteristics of JRuby, and they also see that because TorqueBox provides all of these different pieces that they can plug into, they kind of get a lot of their stack more or less for free, and then they just take advantage of the APIs that are provided by TorqueBox. And then the last group, like you said, is just the group that's using it for a web server, and then occasionally they might dabble over into something else. Right, exactly. And and, and the, the last group is actually a, a growing group we've seen but because we do have such good web performance, being on JRuby, having real threads sitting on top of, you know, it's not a new pure Ruby implementation of a web server we've written. We're just adapting to existing high-performing web implementations. So we've actually had a lot of success with our web performance compared to some of the other Ruby servers. And so part of where we're going in the future is to make sure that people that just want the web bits of Torbox can, can get that without having to bring in all the other bits that they might not want or need at the moment. Are, are there benchmarks for that? I'm really curious. There are. We did a pretty exhaustive benchmarking test. It's a couple years back now, so it's pretty out of date. The latest benchmarks I've seen, and I'll have to get you a link, is a Tech Empower is kind of a third-party they're not affiliated with Red Hat at all. They're not affiliated with uh, Ruby at all. They're, they benchmark lots of languages and frameworks, and they have a benchmark. And we, a while back, transitioned all of their JRuby benchmarks to run on top of TorqueBox 4, which is still in beta. It's, it's not actually completely released yet. But when we did that, we've gotten TorqueBox performance for some of the basic rack apps on par with some languages that you would expect, like Go and and other things. And I'll, I'll get you a link for that to show that. But so our web performance has been doing really well. The Torbox 3, which is our current stable version, is not as fast as Torbox 4, but it's still very fast. People tend to try us out and we perform favorably compared to a lot of MRI-based servers. I'm curious, what was the genesis of the project? That's a great question. So I lead Torbox project. I've led it for about three years, but I did not start Torbox. I did not create Torbox. Torbox was created by Bob McCorder, who is my boss. Bob also was instrumental in the creation of Groovy and Drools. If you've ever heard of the Drools Java, like business rules project. And so he started Torbox. I don't know the exact reason he started Torbox. I can speculate that it's he worked for JBoss at the time. Uh, I actually think he may have been on a sabbatical even at the time. But the idea of the JBoss application server in Java solves a lot of these problems in other languages like in Ruby or, you know, in Rails specifically, we're seeing kind of a reinventing of the wheel. And it takes years and years to get to a mature solution for something that it's already done in another language and it's mature. It's just that it's another language and it has baggage associated with that. So the idea was, can we utilize what's already there from another language without the baggage of having to let users deal with XML files and that kind of stuff that usually comes in the Java world? And so it used to be called JBall's Rails, I believe. And then about uh, six years ago, it renamed to Torbox and became an official project of Red Hat's. And JBoss is also a Red Hat project, right? That's right. Red Hat bought uh, JBoss. Uh, JBoss. When we say JBoss, JBoss is actually used to be its own company, and they had a flagship product called the JBoss Application Server. And Red Hat acquired them several years, many years back. It's before my time. 
so when you hear JBoss, usually people are referring to the JBoss application server, which is mm-hmm. definitely a Red Hat project. Nowadays, that's actually called Wildfly, W-I-L-D-F-L-Y, Wildfly. They renamed to Wildfly for the community version. And as we do at Red Hat, we also have a supported version that they call JBoss Enterprise Application Server. And Torbox builds on top of those bits. We build on top of the community bits since Torbox is a community project to ship our code. Yeah, that makes sense. Back before I started programming professionally, I worked in IT at Brigham Young University, and they were a big Red Hat, Linux, and JBoss shop for all of their assets. So, Yes, we have a lot of customers are, are pretty big shops. It's kind of the challenge of Torbox and, and Ruby, right? Is that a lot of a lot of Ruby shops are not the giant corporate shops. All of that's changing, and, and we've seen that changing in the last several years. So it's an interesting balance to walk between corporate developers and attracting the startups in Ruby that want to write code. And like I said, we I think JRuby has probably helped a lot here getting Ruby into the the enterprise and the corporate environment. Why is it called Torquebox? I actually don't know if I know the the genesis of the name. <laughs> I think box has to do with everything's kind of all in the tin, like everything. The idea is everything you should need to write a, a moderately complex application, not just you know the the demo, but actually when you need cron jobs and messaging and all that kind of stuff. So I think the box is everything's in the tin. I I don't know exactly where the torque came from, whether it denotes power or whether it was just a fun word. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that the the word torque implies leverage. You think of applying torque as increasing your speed of rotation. That's a great explanation. Yes, I'll, I'll have to use that from now on. It's <laughs> increase your speed of development. Apply leverage to your development process with torque box. That's pretty catchy. Make it turn faster. I just get dizzy. So Ben, I'm curious, do you see most of the adoption being Ruby shops that want to take advantage of JRuby, or do you see an equal amount of um, adoption by Java shops who are interested in getting started with Ruby projects? We have a mix of both. We have quite a few Ruby shops that were small and, and they were hitting scaling problems with Ruby. They were on MRI or they were on JRuby, but they were using another web server, whether it was using Warbler and Tomcat or whether it was Puma or something else. And most of our customers seem to be, well, not customers, most of our users seem to be people that have scaling issues with Ruby and they want something to help solve that. And so it's kind of an even blend. And that's another point to the fine line we have to walk is that how Torquebox appeals to the Java developer wanting to try Ruby is a lot different than how Torquebox should appeal to the Ruby developer that's used to MRI. You know, Java developers are used to application servers and containers. Ruby developers are used to just gem install and and, you know, rail server, and that's it. And I think we're swinging more towards the Ruby side now, where with Torbox 4, I can talk about more th- about that in a little bit, but it's a major change for us in kind of direction. And we're really trying to focus more on the embedded use case, the Ruby developer that wants a familiar development feel to how they get with Puma or Thin or Passenger to some extent or Unicorn, where it's just install some gems and go. So I, th- I think that's where we're moving towards, but we have had a lot of interest from the Java shops in the past. And I actually think we're probably, you know, Java people wanting to learn Ruby probably don't try us first. They probably try Warbler first would be my guess, just because then they can directly run that on Tomcat or Glassfish or JBoss application server or whatever they're already running. And that's probably the path of least resistance for those Java shops. 
That's interesting that you have like multiple audiences that you're trying to help the Java to Ruby and the Ruby to JRuby performance levels. Do you find that that affects how you write your documentation? It does. And like I said, it's been a tough balance and we're not sure we even have the balance right yet. But previously our documentation was all written in docbook XML format, which makes a giant manual basically. And and then we've since moved to writing documentation basically as markdown and mainly as, you know, actual documentation on our methods in our Ruby API itself, you know, and actually just using Yardoc to generate a lot of our documentation now. So it is hard because the Java users kind of expect one thing and Ruby users expect another thing. And like I said, I think we're mainly trying to focus now on the Ruby users because Java users that want to use Torquebox have to learn Ruby anyway. And so I think if they want to come to Torquebox and it's familiar from a Ruby standpoint, then that helps them also learn the Ruby culture versus trying to make everything look and feel Java-ish. You know, the A, that alienates our Ruby users, and B, that doesn't do a whole lot to help immerse people transitioning from Java to actually tr- immerse themselves in the Ruby culture and development. I'm, I'm a little curious if somebody has an existing Rails app, what are kind of the red flags or smells or problems that they're going to see that they may want to explore TorqueBox to solve? Just from a pure performance standpoint, if you're making lots and lots of Ruby processes, and this will go really from a generic MRI to JRuby, if you find yourself using lots and lots of Ruby processes, you probably have a lot of memory overhead. And I've seen that you can save a lot of memory by moving to JRuby because we can use threads, we can use a single JRuby runtime and let a thousand threads go in there and, and work. You know, and, and, and there are some caveats around, well, you have to make sure that the code that you've written in your Ruby app is thread safe. That's not always a concern for Ruby developers. You have to make sure your gems are thread safe, which is pretty common now for most gems to be thread safe, but you still run into issues sometimes. So that's just from a pure web performance standpoint. Sometimes on a server, you can save gigs of memory if you're running lots of Ruby processes versus moving to the JVM and running a single process. Not only that, but once you start having a lot of pieces cobbled together, you know, our typical example is you've got rescue or delayed job or some other external, maybe sidekick, right? Some other external processing your jobs. You've got your web processes, whether that's on, you know, Puma or Unicorn or whatever that's on. Then you've got cron daemon setup where you've got some external scheduler process and then you've got like God or Monet to handle some other long running Ruby process that runs in the background. Once you start having a lot of those pieces, that's really where, from a standpoint of using all the features of Torquebox, we can help reduce the complexity by getting it, everything in one JVM, one process. And, you know, we can run your schedule jobs for you. We can do messaging for you. And and we have not only messaging in the traditional sense, but there's also a uh, background job abstraction to make it a little simpler than having to actually send and receive messages. You can just background work, and we do that transparently for you underneath. And then long-running services. And, and we even have built-in things you can't get from Ruby. Like you can't get, I don't know of any Ruby server, at least that does, clustered sessions where you don't have to set up an external database. You don't have to set up an external memcache. The actual process, the Torquebox processes themselves talk to each other, and we can cluster web sessions back and forth. And that's some of the Java technology we can use. We have some smart load balancing integrations where if, if you were willing to use a Java-based, well, an Apache module called Mod Proxy, it talks to the Java-based agent in Torquebox, and it does some smart things for knowing when a server goes down or if you just employ one app but leave another app running in the server and that kind of stuff. 
So our use case is mainly from, you know, you're in production and you start running into these scaling headaches where you want clustering or you want failover or you're having a hard time managing all these different processes. Right. And all of that stuff is handled by the Java ecosystem with JBoss and some of the other things like you talked about. Right. And and it, it does come at a cost, right? Like it's, you know, when you start talking about all these different things, it's not free. You do have to learn more about there's a lot of more knobs you can tweak on the Java side of things because Java developers and especially Java operations people seem to love to tweak knobs. So there is a nice thing in the simplicity of keeping everything separate where everything's just a tiny little package that in and of itself is simple. But sometimes when you add too many simple things together, the, the entire suite becomes a little more complex. And so then that's usually where I'd say if you're reaching a complexity with your stack where all these individual pieces, it's hard to keep them coordinated and working together that's a time where it's good to take a look back and say, maybe I should look at an integrated solution that, you know, and then everything's in one process. Everything's configured the same way. I've now got to learn, you know, instead of learning how to configure rescue, I've now got to learn how to configure Hornet Q, which is the Java library that underlies our messaging. So you've, you've got to be willing to learn some of these job things. It's, that's kind of the, no matter how hard we try at the end of the day, somebody in production has to know how to tune the Java pieces up the stack. You said something interesting there as you're talking about taking a bunch of small pieces and putting them into one thing, like you're moving away from the buzzword of microservices, of small things that are in themselves simple toward a monolith of moving everything into one. But yet this particular monolith has clustering and failover and all of those things that we always talk about with microservices built in. So you're actually making it more safe it's together. I, right. We have that a lot. And there is the application server in Java, which is considered a monolith, right? It's It's got all these things in there. But what you're seeing in the Java world is if you take a project like Wildfly Swarm, which is also created by my boss, Bob McWhorter, that takes a Java application server container and breaks it down into a microservice-friendly a thing where you can just create executable jars that just do one piece of so it's still the application server and you can still you know it's still all integrated well together but you can choose to just use bits and pieces of it and that's kind of what we've done with Torbox 4 which is is not finished yet it's development always takes longer than i guess you think when you do a big rewrite but the idea that we still have all of these as we provide but now you can pick and choose and you don't have to run them all at once but they're still all an integrated piece that work well together. So you can have just one process running if you want to that just does messaging or you can just use web over here. But they still know how to talk to each other. You don't have to learn five different systems. You can just learn the Torquebox API and use it across the board. So it, we, we kind of offer you either way. Up until Torquebox 4, we were pretty much a monolith. But with Torquebox 4, we give you the option to have your monolith or to do your microservices. But either way, you can use the same API for the app. Nice. I think this illustrates that the big monolithic Rails app, the problem isn't inherent in its one process. It's one big unit. Because in Torquebox, you've got, yeah, you can run it all in one big unit. But that unit is built for scalability. And it's built for reliability and it's built for modularity even, especially in Torquebox 4. Yes. And we've had some users ask us if Torquebox 4 is vaporware, like Half-Life 3 or something maybe. But Torquebox 4 has been in development for a while now. And that's it's a big change. For those that aren't familiar, Torquebox 1, 2, and 3 was entirely 
dependent upon the application server. And we bundle the application server, JBoss application server, and we bundle JRuby and all of our bits all in a giant like 170 meg zip file you downloaded. And it had scripts in there to run it. And that's more on the Java end of the spectrum. Right? Java people didn't really mind doing that, but Rubyists were like, what do I do with this? You know, where's my Ruby gem? So, well, with Toolbox 3, we slimmed that down to be like 60 meg, but it was still the same installation process. With Toolbox 4, everything is a Ruby gem. That's it. You just gem install whatever Toolbox. And then what we do is if you want to run inside an application server, then you can download Wildfly application server, and we'll create a WAR file, and you can drop it in your server. Or if you want to, you install your own JRB, whatever JRB version you want. So we don't have to ship a new toolbox every time there's a new JRB release. You can then use JRB 9 or JRB 1.7. So that's a nice change of pace. And the other thing we do is you can create an executable jar file too. So we can run completely outside of your container, just executable jar. And what we do is we take the components that make up the container, the Java container. Uh, we take the components that provide the web and the caching and the messaging, and we just embed those Java libraries directly into our jar file without bringing the entire container infrastructure. So we kind of give you a whole continuum. You can run your app as a WAR file in a container, and maybe as a WAR file in other containers. That's something that we're evaluating, and I think there might be a desire from the community that take my Torbox app, make a WAR file, and not only run it in Wildfly, but let me run it in Tomcat. Let me run it in Glassfish. So we're looking into what that would mean. For the Rubyists who are maybe frightened by, oh my gosh, listen to all those Java words. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You find jar and war. And- sure, sure. No, I, t- I take it for granted because uh, I live in JRuby all day. Jar file is a Java application archive, I think, or Java archive. And it's kind of like the Java version of a gem, of a Ruby gem if you will. It's just a bundle of Java code and properties files and you know code and data. A WAR file is a web application archive. It's basically the same thing, except with a little bit different format, and it's designed to run in Java application servers. So with Toolbox 4, you can create these Java jar files and WAR files. And the advantage there, the reason why you would want to do that, right? Like if you, if you just give somebody your, your Ruby app that runs on Toolbox, they can run it without having any jar files or WAR files, any of these Java stuff. But what they'll have to do is they'll have to, you know, the, the typical Ruby setup, they'll bundle install and, and then rail server, right? And that can fire up Torbox and run their app just like a Rubyist is used to. The reason we provide the other options is that you can create this jar file and give it to somebody and all they need is a JVM. And then they can just execute, the, they can run the jar file. They don't have to have Ruby installed. They don't have to have gems installed. They don't have to deal with any of that. They just run the jar file through the JVM. And it'll run your app. So it's it's a kind of a neat way to distribute apps written in Ruby to someone that doesn't have to know it's written in Ruby. They just need a JVM and they can run your app. Is there a build process to get the jar file? There is. We have a command in one of our gems. It's called Torbox Jar. And all it does is it takes your app, packages it up into a jar file. It takes your JRuby installation, packages that up into the jar file as well because we have to have a JRuby to run everything. And so you end up with this jar file that maybe 20 meg or 50 meg or however big, depending on how big your app is. And that has everything it needs to run just with a JVM without having to have JRuby installed, without having to have gems installed separately. Yeah, jar uh, files can be a little confusing because there's like multiple different kinds. A jar could contain a library. It could be just a bunch of classes that you can then import and use in your app. 
or it could contain all of its dependencies as well. And it could contain configuration to say, here's the main method, and then it can be executable as an application on its own. Right, correct. And then the war file, I believe that just adds some metadata for the application container? That's correct. It, it basically adds an XML file. For, it doesn't have to be an XML file, but the war file just adds metadata. It's typically in the form of an XML file or some other things. There's a couple other layout conventions in the war file as far as where you place the classes, but our users don't have to worry about that. But all it means is it creates a file that is a standard that Java application containers can read and run as a web application. So you, most containers, you put this war file in a certain directory and now it deploys your application for you. Our war files only work with Wildfly right now, which is the successor to the JBoss application server. But like I said, we, we've had some interest and we technically know how to, to do it. So we may spend some time trying to get them working other places in an effort to encourage adoption from people that for some reason don't want to run Wildfly. Like we have a lot of users that, you know, I'm stuck on Tomcat, but I'd like to use it. And currently you can't run our stuff on top of Tomcat, which is a, another popular Java application server. So we want to make sure that the Java users can run us on whichever server they really need to. For Ruby users, none of this really matters. You can just treat us like, you know, like I said, you can just add some dependencies to your gem file, Rails server, and it'll run Torbox, and you don't have to worry about any of this. So if I'm setting things up then to deploy this, you said that you the war files will only run on wild wildfly, is that what it is? That's correct, yes. So do I I have to have a server set up somewhere, not just with the JVM installed, but actually with Wildfly on it. And then the deployment process is just copy the war file up and tell it that it's there. If you're using the war file, I would only suggest to use these war files if you already are using Wildfly. That's the difference. You don't have to have Wildfly to run Torbox applications. But if you have Wildfly, which a lot of people do, we make it so that you can bundle up your Ruby app as a war file and just you put it in a certain directory in Wildfly or use their administrative tools to deploy that war file and it'll deploy the application for you. But if you don't already have Wildfly and you don't have a reason to want Wildfly, then we also allow you to just, like I said, either you make it into an executable jar file, and that means that you can just, all you need is a JVM. Or if you're only deploying, you know, your only audience are Rubyists, then it's easy enough to just distribute the app as you would any other Ruby app, whether it's just the source tree, basically, on disk. And you tell your users to bundle and install and then, you know, bundle exec rail server and, and off you go without having to deal with any Java side of things at all. Oh, gotcha. So you can actually set this up with like Passenger or run, you know, TorqueBox on a JRuby instance and it'll just do its thing. Right. I haven't tried it with Passenger, but TorqueBox definitely can just run, you know, you just, you need JRuby installed and then you can just run TorqueBox without having to deal with any of the Java application servers. Now, if you are using the jar file or war file, does that include, or does that package up all of your static assets as well? So, you know, you compile your SCSS or SAS into CSS, you compile your CoffeeScript or whatever else you're using into regular JavaScript, you have your image files, and it just packages all that into the jar file or war file as well. We have some options when you create the jar and war files as far as what to include and not include. And I'm actually not sure at the moment if we do the asset compilation. Obviously, we should. But like I said, Torbox for us still in beta, and we have a ways to go there. I'll have to look and see. But things like that are where we, the reason we're still in beta, we've got to fix these kind of things for actual production usage. 
and none of this talk of WAR file or JAR files applies to the previous stable releases of Torbox. It was all a giant zip file you download and run, and it does for sure have tasks for pre-compiling assets. With Torbox 4 is basically, you know, I'd love to get some volunteers from the community helping us do these things so that I don't work full-time on Torbox. I do get paid to write open source software, but I'm not paid to full-time work on Torbox. So it'd be great to have some community volunteers, you know, if you want to add to our asset compilation step and stuff like that, it'd be appreciated. If someone wanted to help out with Torbox, how much background would they need in both Java and Ruby? What can people do that's like approachable? Sure. A lot of Torbox is written in Ruby and a lot of it's written in Java. There's kind of a clear delineation. So in the case, the example of asset compilation, tasks like that, things that happen when you're building the jar file, all that happens in Ruby other than the actual final step of writing out the jar file itself. But everything as far as which files should we include in the jar file, what command line flags do we have for this command, all that kind of stuff. All of our command line tools are all written in Ruby and use the Ruby option to parser opt parse, parse options. So it's all very approachable Ruby code. If you want to get into the guts of the actual running server itself, there's going to be at least some Java involved. So the easiest thing, if you just want to help out and only know Ruby, is to help with these command line tools, adding extra options for jar creation, stuff like that. If you're willing to learn Java or you already know Java, then there's a lot that you can do to help out with Simple things like we have some features that exist in Torbox 3 that don't yet exist in Torbox 4 just for lack of time at the moment. And so it'd be great to have anybody that knows Java that can help port features over. Um, if you don't know programming at all and want to help, our documentation could always use help. Migration guides, that kind of stuff. You know, I think we have a task that probably anybody with any skill level could do. And if you know Ruby and or Java, then obviously that's a bonus. And some things, there are some tasks that you really are going to have to know the guts of the underlying technologies that build up the Wildfly application server. And so for some of those, some tasks are going to require a lot of in-depth knowledge that not everybody would have. But if you have a basic understanding of Java or Ruby, you can help out with most things. What kind of involvement do you see from the open source community? We haven't had a lot of involvement lately. So what? how Torbox started is it was basically a Red Hat-driven project. We had a team of four or five engineers paid by Red Hat you know, we evolved Torbox and we had a lot of users and we still have a lot of users. But over time, the number of people paid to work on Torbox full time has diminished. And so now we're trying to reach out more of the community. And, and I think part of it is we had a lot of community, you know, pull requests with simple things. Other than one or two, we never had very many non-Red Hat actual contributors to the code, actual people involved in the day-to-day rolling of the code. And it could be that maybe all of us being Red Hat employees maybe gave the impression that it was like a, a sacred cow or something that maybe outside people couldn't touch, but that's not at all the case. So we've had some discussion on the mailing list about opening things up, getting people more involved with Torbox itself. We have a lot of users still, and we always have a lot of users looking for support as well. So there's plenty of opportunity here as well for some people to learn Torbox and offer support services to some of our users. It's something that I or Red Hat don't provide at the moment and would be a, a, a great benefit to the community as well. If somebody doesn't even want to write code, but they are great at you know, helping find and fix problems, and there's always that avenue as well. When you think about the future of Torquebox, do you see it becoming more of an open source community-led project, or do you think it'll always kind of take the lead and be home at Red Hat? Well, Red Hat, I'm sure, would always be willing to provide us resources as far as CI and, and websites and all that kind of stuff. But I would love for, similar to, if you look at JRuby itself, right? 
Red Hat employs some of the JRB developers, but there are a lot of people that contribute to JRB that work for other companies, that work you know outside of Red Hat. And I'd love for Torbox to be the same way. From a pure standpoint of we could get more done faster, you know, we could get Torbox 4 out the door and better. And also I, I see a big need in the JRB community to have a high performance well-maintained server. There's kind of a gap there right now. There's a lot of servers that work on JRuby, but some of the more popular ones don't have the best performance on JRuby, and it's mainly because it's a lot of work to maintain a high-performance server on the Java side, especially you've got to make sure you're staying up to date with the latest you know, Java web server technology where everybody's doing NIO, non-blocking IO now. And years ago, everything was thread based. So it'd be great to get a lot of people outside of Red Hat working on it. And, you know, I'd love to continue leading it, but uh, I'd love to have people volunteer and help. And really the door is open to anybody at this point that has a passion for open source. You know, if they, if they want to help with open source development, this is a great way to do it. I have another question related to TorqueBox and JRuby. I mentioned that I have used TorqueBox in the past. I wasn't super involved with the deployment part of it, which is why I was asking questions about that. But one thing that I did notice is when I was doing development, the startup time, and I think this was more JRuby's fault than TorqueBox's fault, but there was a significant startup cost for each process. So I'd run it at rake task and it'd have to start up the JVM and get everything squared away there and then it could do the work. So for long running stuff, it was fine because you know you pay that cost when you start up and then it performs great after that. But for running rate tasks and stuff, it didn't make a ton of sense because it took forever for it to start up. Um, I know that the story with that on JRuby has gotten better, but do you see that as an impediment to people adopting TorqueBox in development? I'm sure it is for some people. It, like you said, it's not really a TorqueBox specific impediment, more a JRuby impediment. And the JRuby people know that and probably more so than just about anybody else. If, if they could find a magic way to just make startup instant, they'd be all over it. And I know that the JRuby 9 and they have a new intermediate representation in how they're representing Ruby code. And I know they have some hopes there to be able to persist some of that, write it at the disk, and then load it back up and, and maybe do things faster on startup. So there is a lot of work. They even have a, they've done some work in making some new flags on the command line that I think there's like a, a dash dash dev flag now for JRuby that will tweak some, you know, there's some options you can tweak to make it start up faster at the expense of max throughput. So for things like rate tests, a lot of times you'd be willing to make that trade off that yes, start faster here. You know, I don't care if it doesn't run at maximum throughput after it's been running for 10 minutes. I just wanted to start fast and exit quickly. So they're, they've been working on extra flags on the command line. And then I, I think they have a lot of hopes for a new intermediate representation. And then I think the JVM itself, I think the Java teams that work on the JVM itself are aware that, you know, that is kind of a stigma. And they've been, there's been a lot of interesting things coming out of the uh, Java team at Oracle, some of their research labs. So hopefully one day that'll be a non-issue. But for now, yes, the startup is still is still higher. And so if running a rate task in half a second, right, is just like if, if it can't boot up and run your rate task and exit in half a second, then you may have to run that rate task under MRI or look at some of the other JRB options. There's some options to kind of keep a hot process running in the background so that you have less of that startup cost at the expense of this always running Java process in the background that you can kind of get it to run your code very quickly. So there's, there's kind of some hacks like that, but I think that's one of their main goals with JRB9 is to try and, if there's any way to solve this outside of the Java people themselves solving it, solve it. And I don't know, maybe once everybody has solid state drives, if they don't already, and you know, high-speed computers, maybe the problem will go away. But in the meantime, it's always kind of that stigma. And you just get used to it. Like I get used to, okay, it takes a second for a rake task to run instead of you know one quarter of a second or however quick MRI can start up and shut down. 
The other question I have is if people have a running app they want to try in, at least try out in development, you know, just to see how it does on TorqueBox. Do they just install the TorqueBox gem and the TorqueBox server gem and then bundle install under JRuby and then just Rails server just to see what it does? Is that the best way to try it out? The easiest way, if we want to try out TorqueBox 4 in this case, probably the best thing for somebody that's new to TorqueBox, try it out. It still is in beta, so you've got to add the TorqueBox gem to your gem file. You've got to make sure you put a version qualifier on there. Otherwise, Bundler will skip any uh, what's called pre-release gems or versions. But yeah, add it to your gem file, Bundle install. If you're moving from MRI to JRuby, you may have to delete your gem file.lock first and then Bundle install again. Sometimes you have problems with that. If you're moving from MRI to JRuby in general, you've got to do some other things too, like make sure you don't have gems with C extensions or you find a suitable replacement. So there are some caveats there. If you're already on JRuby and just want to try out TorqueBox, it's quite straightforward. Just add us to your gem file, bundle install, and then I think you have to do Rails as TorqueBox. I don't think I think if you just do Rails server, it'll probably boot up the built-in server. But if you do Rails as TorqueBox, it'll boot up TorqueBox for you. Yeah, I can just say that most of the time when I've switched over to JRuby, most of the gems I use just work. So you can just try it out, and then if it barfs on one of the gems, then you know you have to replace it. Right, exactly. And that's the easiest way, in my opinion, to find out if your gems work or not. Because a lot of gems with C extensions also have Java extensions on the JRuby side. So just because you have a C extension under MRI doesn't mean it won't work in JRuby because there might be a Java-specific extension or maybe a fallback to plain old Ruby on the Java side that it would work. Torquebox GitHub reposts that Torquebox runs on top of Wonderboss. What is Wonderboss? Wonderboss was never meant to be a public project. It's just a code name that we came up with. So Torquebox has a sister project I haven't mentioned until now. Our sister project is Immutant. I-M-M-U-T-A-N-T. And it's everything that Torquebox does. It's the same thing, but for Clojure and Clojure apps instead of Ruby. And so Immutant and Torquebox sit on top of this common core that's mostly Java, that we codenamed Wonderboss. And Wonderboss is basically the layer that allows us to run inside a Java application server or run directly outside of Java application server in what we call embedded mode. It's the thing that lets us let TorqueBox and, and a mutant appear to Ruby and Clojure users as they would expect instead of always having to take their app and deploy it to an app server. So it's, it's basically just a shim and a helper for common APIs and to help translate APIs from what our users expect into what the Java world expects with the application server model. And basically, it also aggregates the actual components of the application server itself. It has them as dependencies and helps lets us bundle them in. And we can kind of transparently, to our Ruby and Clojure code, use the right library, whether you're running inside or outside of the application server. It's, it's a little complex there to get all the class loaders right. If you're not from Java, you won't know what class loaders are. but And you don't want to find out if you're not from Java. <laughs> but, but if you are from the Java world, you so know where they true. are. Yes. If you know Java, class loaders can be frustrating, especially in application servers. And so it's, it has a lot of code there that is the underlying bits. And the goal being that you could come along and make a new torque box, but say for Scala or for any other JVM-based language, really. And a lot of the underlying work would be done for you. It's just now you have to put the language-specific facade on top of it all. That's the idea of Wonderboss. And that's the grand vision is that one day, you know, maybe instead of just Clojure and Ruby, maybe there would be other JVM, you know, maybe we'd have a Scala and a Groovy and a Ceylon or any, whatever language you have could have the same capability that we provide. 
Cool. Yeah, but Wonder Boss doesn't have its own website or anything. So <laughs> I'm impressed you you found that out. Maybe we need to remove that from the footer of that page until we decide to make it its own project. Yeah, the GitHub repo for it looked pretty sparse. So right, yes, it, it's not. It's a developer facing, but it's not really user facing. But if anybody is interested in taking the features we provide in Torbox Four, you know, and, and doing that for another language, they can get in touch with us because Wonder Boss will make that much easier than it otherwise would be. And just to be clear, Torquebox works for any React-based Ruby framework. Yes, yeah, so, uh, we have integration tests with quite a few. There's a lot that we haven't tested with, but we do follow the Rack spec. Everything that's mandatory in the Rack spec, we follow. We have a partial Rack hijack implementation for WebSockets. And when I say partial, we actually implement it mostly. But a lot of Rack hijack consumers, if you know what the Rack hijack API is, it's usually used for, well, most commonly people seem to use it for WebSockets on top of Rack or any other kind of low-level communication that the Rack spec didn't really handle well. And they kind of it's kind of like a Band-Aid on the Rack to make it work for some more streaming use cases, WebSockets, that kind of a thing. And we do implement that. We have tested the TubeSock gem against Torquebox 4, which is a WebSocket, Ruby WebSocket library, and it works fine. But any event machine-based WebSocket library doesn't work. Well, what we found is in the Java world, some of these Ruby gems on the JRuby have Java extensions that expect, you know, they, they kind of make an assumption about the exact implementing class that is your your socket connection or your IO stream. And in our case, that's not the right class. You know, maybe it is when you run under a different server, but not under our server. So some things don't work. Anything event machine based using WebSockets doesn't seem to work because it expects a certain class. But the tube sock gem works fine. And we also provide our own sock.js implementation, which sock.js is maybe not as popular as it used to be in the node world, but it was a, a solution for doing WebSocket push with fallback to other transport protocols if WebSockets weren't supported. And we do provide that as well. So, so we try and make sure we support the rack spec, but also the things that you need to build a modern web app that maybe rack doesn't handle that well. And hopefully, you know, as work happens on a newer rack spec, we can have some input there and make sure that it works out well for JRuby based servers. Are there any features in Torquebox that people generally don't know are there that are useful? You, you know, we've kind of culled the feature list over the year. The ones that don't seem to get used, we kind of uh, have stopped supporting because just to save, you know, headaches for things that people don't actually use and trying to keep it working. Uh, we do have some features that are useful, but that very few people use. We support distributed transactions. And if you're not from the Java world, you might not even know what those are, but it's where like I can have a single transaction between my database and my messaging system so that if this message fails to get handled or published on the queue, then this database write gets rolled back kind of a thing. You know, it's it's oh, transactions wow. among more than one resource, right? Not just transactions in my database layer, but transactions between my distributed cache, my messaging layer, my database. And we've supported that for a while, but it doesn't seem to get used a whole lot. So that's one of the things that's maybe in danger of being ripped out if people don't use it. It's very powerful, but it just is not something that Ruby is to seem to really take advantage of. So um, that's definitely one of those that's next on the list to reconsider. Do we want to continue? You know, we, we like distributed transactions and the idea, and we think they're useful, but if people aren't going to use it, then it's a lot of work to support them, especially given that in the Rails world, especially like Active Record didn't really, you have to kind of monkey patch Active Record to get distributed transaction support. There's no Ruby ORM that natively supports it. And we didn't want to have to tell our users, well, you've got to use Hibernate from the Java world as a, or any other Java, you know, Java 
has a lot of these ORMs that support distributed transactions, but Ruby just doesn't. So it's a lot of work to maintain the monkey patches there and to get it all working. So, but that's one of our probably least used features that's actually pretty cool. But uh, if you use it, you need to speak up because otherwise it's probably going to rip it out <laughs> before too long. Sounds like a handy feature to me. It is. Um, but I just, you know, it's, in the Ruby world, it's not something that really exists. Yep. outside of Torquebox. So I guess I see why it's not used. I mean, it, it can be more than handy. You can, you know, it, it can save your data in some cases. Mm-hmm. And of course you, you can get by without them, but you have to be a lot more careful about making sure you're doing item potent operations and that kind of stuff. Or you've got to have some other way to make sure you're not, you know, leaving things in a hanging state if a server crashes in the middle of something going on. Yeah. That's, that's a good point actually, because I assume you build features based on problems and issues you're having or feedback from the community. But once a feature is built and released, how do you decide or how do you know if it's working or solving that problem? And when would you decide to you know, retire it? Our first line of defense is, are people asking questions about that feature? Are they following bugs about that feature You know, on the mailing list or on our GitHub issues or Jira uh, issue tracker? And that's kind of a good indication of are people using it? Because in almost all cases, even if, you know, by some miracle there aren't any bugs in a feature, there's still going to be people asking questions about it. And then we also are proactive sometimes to say, hey, on the mailing list, who's using this? You know, who's using this in production? Who's not? And the other flip side, too, is sometimes we develop a feature because we want to see can we do it? Like, I think the transaction is more can we do that from Ruby? Kind of, we wanted to push the boundaries of what can you do in Ruby? So, you know, we, we got distributed transactions working across active record and uh, a distributed cache and messaging. And it was awesome. But in that case, that wasn't born out of a need for us to have it. It was more, can we do it? And we think it would be useful and we did do it and we still think it's useful, but you know, users don't seem to ask a whole lot of questions about it or anything. So maybe it's useful, but not, you know, it, it, like it's useful, but not right for the Ruby community at, at this point in time, maybe kind of a thing. Torquebox is an application server, and it's also got all these other pieces built in. Do you see it as this is something that if you build your application here or once you put your application inside Torquebox and use the Torquebox API, you're at a really good place for growth? That was kind of our hope. I think it is that a lot. Kind of our hope with Torquebox especially Toolbox 4 where we kind of we made it where you could choose just the web bit or just the messaging bit. It was to kind of get users to move into our web pieces because it's very high performance, low overhead web server, right? And at that point, okay, you're just using web bits. But then if you need to add the things that almost every application at some point when it grows enough needs to add, some kind of a job scheduler, some kind of a messaging system, some kind of a clustering or scaling or load balancing. The goal was that we're here for you. You know, we, we have an API for that. We don't have an API for everything, obviously, and we never will. But, but at least for the most common task that we think we have a good solution for, we're here for you and provide an API for that when you need it. And uh, if you don't need it, that's fine. But you probably will at some point. Was kind of the the thinking, and and so we're here when you do. So I think it is a great path for growth if you get started on it. And at the same time, if, if you never have anything but web, then you know you haven't lost anything by choosing us to use your web bits because now you get a high-performance web server. And it's not like there's a, a, a downside to just using us for your web bits either. But if you need more, we're there. And the other thing worth mentioning too is if you decide you don't like our messaging 
right? You can just use somebody like there's no restriction. You can just use somebody else's. So you don't have to use the APIs we provide just because we provide them. You can pick and choose which pieces you want to use. And if you, for some reason you want to use Sidekick for your background job processing instead of what we have, that's fine. You know, you're not going to hurt our feelings. We provide something. We think it will work well, but you're feel free to choose something else if you uh, have a need to. So you, it's not an exclusive choice. You don't have to stick to only Torquebox features on Torquebox. You can use other things as well. Cool. It sounds like uh, Torquebox provides a ramp, both in terms of scale and performance, and also in terms of like all the extra components you might need to add. Yes, yeah, so, uh, hopefully so. And uh, and the other thing that we provide that the JRB guys love is we have a heck of an integration test suite. It takes forever to run, so CI runs it. But every time there's a JRB release, we run our full integration test suite, make sure it's green before they release. And just another great thing that comes from working closely with the JRB guys, I guess, that it's really helpful. The first time I saw TorqueBox, I was like, okay, they just need to bolt in the kitchen sink. But it, it really does have a lot of features that are really handy, and it does a lot for you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Is everything in the kitchen sink? Anyway, let's go ahead and do picks. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Code School. Code School is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, Code School has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at CodeSchool.com slash RubyRogues. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Braintree. Go check them out at BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they are a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. Saran, do you have some picks for us? Yep, I have two picks. Um, so the first is from Khan Academy. So I don't know if you guys knew this, but I didn't know that Khan Academy had like partner content. And I was looking through it, and it's kind of interesting. They have partnerships with like NASA and Nova Labs and also LeBron James, which I thought was kind of random. But one of them that I wanted to talk about was Pixar in a Box. And so it talks about all these animation-related classes that they do and courses online, which are really interesting. And there's one that feels very beginner-friendly called Introduction to Animation Curves. And it talks about coding, but also math. And it makes it just incredibly friendly and really approachable. So I encourage everyone to check that out. My second one is, have I done the Tony Stark salt and pepper artwork yet? No. I don't think so. Okay. This thing is awesome. Okay. So there's this artwork done of Tony Stark, but entirely in salt and pepper. And it's in, it's just mind blowing. Like the, the way they did the gradients and the shadows, I cannot believe that it. it's just, it's just salt and pepper. And it's awesome. So I think everyone should check that out. Those are my two picks. Nice. Jessica, what are your picks? Okay. My first pick is Elixir Conf. Because if you want to learn Elixir or if you are doing Elixir and want to learn more, ElixirConf is October 1 through 3 in Austin this year. There's a training day and two days of conference. And I'm speaking, and it's going to be cool. Oh, go you. Yay. Nice. Yeah, I know. At yet another conference for a language that I don't yet know. Elixir's cool. <laughs> oh, very, very. I got to play with Elixir and really enjoyed it a lot. So I agree. Yeah, and the actor model is important. There's like Elixir and the actor model will stretch your mind 
as it takes you farther into object-oriented programming than any other object-oriented language really goes. Wow. Yeah. I have one more pick, and that is from last week I was at the React Rally Conference in Salt Lake City, which was very interesting. And the most interesting thing was uh, two people from Facebook talked about GraphQL. And it's really interesting how it takes all of the data needs from the, the different components in the client and passes them to the server in one request. And then the server like assembles the data in the format requested by the client instead of the client making REST calls and then the next level and then the next level and the next level for a lot of network traffic. I think that's going to be really important in future architecture between UI and backend. Uh, so I'm going to pick GraphQL and I'll put a link in the show notes. It's pretty cool. That's it. Nice. If you want more information about GraphQL and some of the other React stuff, we did an episode with Nick Schrock and Joe Savona on GraphQL and Relay on JavaScript Jabber. So you can check that out too. Coraline, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have a couple of picks. The first is a short film by Shane Coizan, and I might be massacring that last name. It's called Troll. It's from the album and graphic novel Silence is a Song I Know All the Words To. It's a beautiful animation, five-minute song. It looks like it's drawn on cloth. And it provides a perspective on the modern phenomenon of hostile trolling in the online world, something that I've experienced and probably a lot of other people have experienced. It's sort of a, a take on what happened to the mythological troll as it transformed into the information age. So it's really great, really beautiful, and really poignant. And that's my first pick. My second pick is a library called Fun Tools. It was created by my friend Tina Wiest. It's a collection of tools to help Rubyists write Ruby in a more functional style. The recursion tool, for example, provides helper methods to assist in writing code that's recursive in nature while avoiding issues with Ruby's poor support for tail claw optimization. There are additional tools for pattern matching, type checking, composition, and immutable data structures. It's a pretty cool project and uh, can really change the way you think about how to do Ruby. If you're looking to get, start experimenting with functional principles, it can be a good introduction to those as well. So that's my second pick. Very nice. I'm going to put a couple of picks out there. First off, we did Ruby Remote Conf a few months ago. Great talks, great stuff. Um, I'm actually going to be making those videos public, so you can go check them out. I'll put a link to the playlist in the show notes. And then related to that, I also have the Remote Conf's RSS feed. It's currently putting out the JS Remote Conf talks. And I know that there's some interest with our listenership here in JavaScript. And then after that, I will be putting the Ruby Remote Conf talks out there. Coraline gave a talk at that, and it was awesome. And then we had a whole bunch of others, including related to what Jessica picked. There was a talk by Dave Thomas, which is what got me interested in Elixir in the first place. And I think you really make some terrific points about where programming as an industry is going and some of the things that... Uh, you know, that have been mentioned about Elixir with the actor model and pattern matching and things like that, that change the way you really think about problems and solve things in a much nicer and cleaner way in, in many cases. Yeah. So I'm just going to pick the Ruby remote conf talks and things like that. And then just remind you that we are doing an angular remote conf. So you can go check that out. That's angularremoteconf.com, And I'll put a coupon code up rogues and that'll get you 20% off. So, uh, those are my picks. Ben, what are your picks? All right. So I mentioned earlier, I work on a, I work from home. Maybe I didn't mention that. I work from home on a distributed team and I love working that way. And my boss just gave a presentation at QCon Rio about 
what it's like to work on a distributed team. And so uh, one of my picks is that presentation. It was one of the keynotes at QCon Rio. It will be on their web, the official QCon Rio website at some point, but it's not yet. And it's a great read if, if you've never worked on a distri- distributed team or if you've been a remote worker working from home while everybody else was in an office. It's a great intro into what a distributed team is and why at least we value that more so than just being that one guy that, or one girl that works from home while everybody else is in an office without you, um, which is not a good team dynamic. My other pick is actually a website and a group called Coders for Sanders. If you've ever heard of uh, Bernie Sanders is running for president, there's a group of volunteers that if, that are being active in their democracy. And, and no matter who or whatever you are advocating for your democracy, I encourage all of us software developers, graphic designers, anybody to become active and get involved with that in a direct way if possible. So there's a group of volunteers that put together websites and apps, mobile apps, and all kinds of other stuff to help try and get uh, him elected president. All right. Well, I don't think there's anything else, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. If people want to follow you or the Torquebox Project, where do they go? Twitter.com slash B Browning is me, B B R O W N I N G, or Twitter.com slash Torquebox, T O R Q U E B O X. And our website is torquebox.org. We hang out on IRC, we're on the mailing list. Uh, you can find links from the website, and we're always happy to answer questions. All right. Well, thanks again, Ben. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.